We have been looking in these past three weeks, this is the penultimate of our series, in the five solas, the five principles that have come to recognise as the principles of the Reformation. I'll be honest with you, until Richard started this course, I'd not really thought about this in any detail and not really researched it either. However, in my preparations I find that though these five principles, that by the way is Luther at the Diet of Worms making his defence before the Holy Roman Empire. In case you wondered, the Diet of Worms is not some curious culinary facility. Those of you who have not been on the Basilea course may not know that the word diet in this context means a general assembly of the Holy Roman Empire. So the Diet of Worms was a meeting that took place in a place called Worms. Is that correct? Nod from the external examiner, that's always reassuring. Now the thing is, Luther did not engage the services of some marketing agency or some PR company to work out how he could develop this theme that would captivate the people, principally of Germany, then Europe, and then the world. This kind of coalesced later. These five solas, as they are called, didn't really get grouped together until the middle of the 20th century. There were three to begin with, the first three, and then there was a bit of shuffling. These were the undeniable principles. But you have to understand, as we learnt in the early weeks from Richard, that Luther wasn't trying to dismantle the Catholic Church or to challenge the Catholic Church to the point of its division. He just wanted them to consider the anomalies he'd discovered in the way they were behaving. That's what he wanted. And instead of getting a fair and objective hearing, he was greeted with bigotry and prejudice. And it was at the Diet of Worms, that gathering which you saw depicted there, he found himself forced to leave the Catholic Church because their, their principle was you either accept what we say and dismiss these notions of yours or you leave. We owe it to those who have stood in the breach to grant us the liberty that we have to exercise our faith with the freedom we have these days and not to take it for granted. Men have gone to their death to translate the Bible into the vernacular so we could read it for ourselves. That's how tight the grip of the established and institutional church was to keep these things in language that the ordinary man could not understand. We have become flabby and complacent and we don't read our Bibles regularly. We forget what it costs people to provide that for us to read regularly. And the freedom we enjoy in worship and the principles that we understand in all of that, these were heavily fought for. Feel for Luther stood there in that gathering with all that hostility and opposition. Simply trying to say, this is what God has revealed to me. If you come forward in this establishment here, if you come and say, this is what God has revealed to me, we will not reject you, we will consider what you have to say. And if it's not quite right, then we'll help you get to the truth of it. You won't be ridiculed or rejected or cast out. God has accepted us, we accept each other. The thing is, we see things partially these days. There will come a time when we will see God in all his splendour and fullness and there will be no more ambiguity and misunderstanding. We will know things fully. We will know him fully as he fully knows us. We're not in that place yet. We are fallible and partial. And we have to recognise that. So these were the principles that came to recognise only on the basis of scripture, only by grace, which, uh, which um, uh, David shared with us uh, the week before last, only through faith, which Richard dealt with last week. And we come this week to solus Christus, only through Christ. And Richard will conclude next week with soli deo gloria, only to the glory of God. And there's, there's, a, there's a depiction of um, 
Luther, not to, to looking terribly happy, I think. Maybe he'd eaten some worms. I don't know. <laughs> so today, I put, I've put it this way around, through Christ alone. Just it's easier for me to express in those terms. We're now at the foundation amongst these foundational principles, the significance of Christ in our doctrine. Now, I am not really qualified to do justice to this. I've been a Christian for 40 years. 40 years. And sometimes I wonder what I've accomplished in that time. Throughout that time, I've known God to be faithful. I have ebbed and flowed. I've done some things that if I had my time again, I would not repeat. But not only has God been faithful, throughout that interval, he has been gracious and forgiving. And he has yearned over my life. He has watched over my life when even I was negligent towards him. And he has impelled me towards the purpose for which he prepared me. And he's doing exactly the same for all of you, if you will allow him. But the significance of Christ in our doctrine. This is the foundation amongst foundations. As I said in the start. Much of what we take for granted, sadly, bore a high price, starting with Jesus and all those who've earnestly followed him since. So here's the context for our message today. What's going on there? Isn't it interesting that the Last Supper and communion was instituted in the context where Jesus washed his disciples' feet? And he said, the example I've set, you should follow. How would you react? On a Sunday morning, if in addition to the communion table, there was another little plinth over here with a bowl of warm water and some soap and some towels. Angie's already alerted us that tights are the work of Satan. So we probably alert you on that morning, ladies, not to come so attired. But how would you think if we washed each other's feet? Let me tell you this. It's hard to wash another person's feet if you're filled with pride. It's hard to have your feet washed if you're proud. It's a humbling activity for all the parties. And it was the role of the most menial servant. And that's what Jesus did. Turn with me, please, to John chapter 13. And we'll set the context for what we're looking at today. They had gathered in the upper room for the last Passover. And it says this in verse 2 of chapter 13 of John's Gospel. He now showed them the full extent of his love. That's an expression worth pondering. The meal was being served, and it goes on to say, he took off his outer garment, verse 4, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said, Are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You don't realise what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus said, A man who's had a bath only needs to wash his feet, because walking in sandals in that territory, it was your feet that got dirty, yeah? His whole body is clean. You are clean, but not one of you, because he knew that he was going to be betrayed. 
When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. He said, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you shall also wash one another's feet, whether literally or metaphorically or both. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, and no messenger is greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This was the context. Jesus was Lord, but he served. He served. It says, the context, he showed them the full extent of his love. (laughs) Just spool forward. To verse 33 of chapter 13. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. On to verse 36. Simon Peter said, Lord, where are you going? Where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then the telling words to Peter, Jesus said, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. I wonder what Peter felt in that moment. But this is the context. Jesus has washed his disciples' feet to show the absolute basic level of service. Put yourself right at the foot of the pile. If you want to lead, you're going to have to serve. And you're going to have to take the minimum position if you want to be glorified. And he then went on to say this in chapter 14. And so we come to our pivoting verse for today. Do not your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would... would So I would have told you, I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. So you may also be where I am. You know the way, you know the way to the place I am going. Interesting juxtaposition with the previous remark. Thomas this time is the one that chirps up. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And now we come to the verse. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on you do know him and have seen him. So how would they know the way? Because they know Jesus. This is the secret of eternal life, Jesus said elsewhere in John's Gospel. That they may know you, he was praying to his father. They may know you. They may be acquainted with you. They may be in a living, vibrant, functional relationship with you. Not knowing about you in a purely intellectual sense, but acquainted with you. Acquainted with you. And if nothing else over these 40 years, I have learned that an acquaintance with God is the most precious thing that any mortal can find. It eclipses anything of any other value whatsoever. If you know God, then you are secure. If you don't know God, then your future is at best uncertain. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Let's just consider this. Notice how it begins with, I am. Okay? Now, I'm not really a Greek scholar. I'm not really a theologian. I'm an engineer. But that, the Greek there, ego eimi, is that correct pronunciation? I am. Now this is a little bit more than what we might think about. 
In the Greek language, I am is more intense than you might think if I just say, I am an engineer, I'm a pilot, I'm tired. It's a statement, isn't it? But in Greek, it's a bit more than that. You could render it this way. I, myself, and only I, comma, am. It was emphatic. And to the audience there, the Jews, it was a bit more than that. Because he went on to say this in another context. Truly I say unto you before Abraham was, I am. There are a number of occasions where Jesus says, I am. And what he's doing is, he is saying, I am God. I am God. It wasn't lost on his Jewish audience, because in this context, in chapter 8, they picked up stones to kill him for his blasphemy. But it just says he slipped away through the crowd. He slipped away. His time wasn't come. They would kill him, of course, clumsily and prejudicially. And they would fulfill the will of his father in doing that. It was brutal, but it had to be that way. When he was asked in the Garden of Gethsemane, sorry, when he asked, he asked the soldiers in the Gethsemane, who are you searching for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And what happened to the disciples when they heard him say that? Somebody louder, please. They fell to the ground. When Jesus declares his deity, it is not a mere statement. It is an utterance of authority. And the soldiers realized it and fell back to the ground. They knew whatever they were doing, they were in a place of authority. He submitted himself to their arrest. He could have just evaporated at that point if he'd wanted or slipped away like he did before. But he allowed himself to be arrested. He allowed himself to suffer all of that. And as you know the story, he even healed somebody who Peter impetuously attacked. Now then, when Jesus speaks of the way... He is using the definite article, isn't he? I am the way, not a way, the way. We said through Christ alone is our theme for this morning's lesson. I am the way. No one comes to the Father but by me. That would be an incredible statement if it wasn't true. We explore the options in the discovery course about who Jesus might have been. Was he a lunatic? Was he a good teacher? Was he this? Was he that? Was he the other? And you you come to the conclusion fairly quickly, he either was who he said he was, the great I am, the son of God, God and man in one entity, or he was a criminal, an imposter, a con man. But it would be tricky for a con man to raise people from the dead and to bring sight back to people who've been blind from birth. That would have been a big call. Plenty of common around in Jesus' time, but they fell away because they couldn't support what they said. Everything that Jesus said was substantiated. Not one word was wasted. Not one word. <laughs> I tell my students when they're in the aircraft, what's that button? And they say to me dutifully, it's the PTT. That stands for push to talk. I say to them, it might as well be called the PTMEEL push to make everybody else listen because when you push that button only you can talk if anybody else pushes the button at the same time nobody can talk (laughs) Angie says she's not equipped with a PTT button (laughs) 
and your interest, it'll intrigue you, no doubt, those of you who know me well, that I exhort my students, be brief, be concise, be accurate. Listen before you speak, so that you don't subject people to loads of words. Ironic, don't you think? <laughs> As Richard, who once said, all of us use words, but Peter uses them relentlessly. <laughs> Not in the air when I'm on the radio. I'm succinct. They have a nickname for me at Humberside Radar. You know, they call me ATIS, the Automatic Terminal Information Service. <laughs> if you dial that up, it says, runway 20, damp, 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 QNH 1024. It gives you all the information automatically, so you can tell what to, how to set your instrument up. And they call me ATIS because of my robotic nature on the radio. <laughs> I think it's a compliment. There you go. Why am I saying this? I'm not known for brevity of words. I'm sorry if I've burdened you with words in the past. As I get older, I get more reticent to speak. The trend is still continuing. <laughs> but Jesus didn't shower people with words like confetti. When he spoke, there was a purpose in his words. When he spoke, there was going to be life and healing and purpose coming from those words. Not one syllable was wasted. And when he spoke, things happened. With this wonderful story of the... Of the, of the, of the military officer and when he told Jesus about his servant being sick Jesus said I'll come he said you don't need to I myself am a man under authority he recognised in Jesus authority and he said you just have to say the word now he was a Roman soldier what was Jesus response he turned around to the gathering who were watching to see what would happen he said I've not seen faith like this in all Israel that would have been a bit of an insult wouldn't it this Roman has more faith than you Jews how to win friends and influence people. And it's reported in the scripture that his servant was healed at the very moment that, that that exchange took place. When Jesus speaks, things happen. And that has not changed in 2,000 years. When Jesus speaks over your life, things happen. If you hear and receive his word, things happen. If you resist his word, then the intention of God in your life is at best delayed, possibly thwarted altogether if you resist. Because God will not compel you. He'll encourage you, but he won't compel you. So Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Peter reiterated it himself after all his earlier mistakes when he got, the act, got his act together. In Acts 4, he said, salvation is found in no one else because there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. This is the same Peter who was fumbling around with the truth earlier. When he got understood, he was a powerful force for the gospel. This is more than the means to our eternal destiny with God. When Jesus said, I am the way, it wasn't just, I am the path that you follow to get to there, you know, which is how that has been interpreted. It's more than that. It's the means to access God right now in our, the mortal phase of our lives. A fundamental issue for Luther and his fellow proponents of what became the Reformation was the principle of the universal priesthood, or the, prince, the priesthood of believers, meaning that ordinary Christians, people like you and I, through Christ, enjoy direct access to God through their prayers without the need of a human mediator. And if you remember nothing else from what I say this morning, remember this. That when you enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you are individually granted access to the Father through Jesus. And moreover, he wants you to exercise that access 
and enjoy the consequence of a relationship with him. A relationship isn't a relationship if we don't communicate, is it? God communicates with us and he wants us to communicate with him. So we we saw earlier the picture of the diet of worms, didn't we? Well, here is a different diet. This is the diet of Augsburg. And in 1530, so a little bit later than the Diet of Worms, about eight years later, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V had called on various parties in Germany to explain their religious convictions. He knew there was something rumbling, and he wanted to try and keep the church religiously and politically united. Luther and others had already drafted a statement of their theological views, and that became known as the Articles of Schwabach. That was the year before, in 1529. And they were directed by the elector John of Saxony in May of 1530 to prepare statements in response to Charles V's invitation. What culminated was this gathering, the Augsburg Confession. And when the time came in June for this to be presented, the Protestant parties, the Protestant princes as they were called, they wanted a public reading of their statement. This was refused. And efforts were made to prevent a public reading of the document altogether, including holding the meeting in the little chapel at the Episcopal Palace. It is a criminal thing when a church or a religious institution seeks to stifle the liberty of the word of God for its own ends. Whether it's traditional, Richard said to us in the first week, we have scripture, we have tradition, we have reason, and we have experience. But the, the, three, the three categories... Second, third, and fourth are subordinated colossally to the first one. Scripture is immutable. The other things are subjective and can take us hither and thither. So, Charles V, he tried to stop them having a public reading and gave them a small meeting room. But a certain Christian bear, who you can see stood up in the middle there in front of that awning, he was the one who delivered this. Luther, by the way, wasn't allowed to be present because as of the Diet of Worms, he'd been excommunicated. So he had influence over the proceedings, but he wasn't allowed to be present. Crazy, isn't it? It took him two hours to read out the Augsburg Confession. And it was so distinct that every word could be heard outside. So the general public heard it nonetheless. Neither the Latin or German text. He read it in German, by the way. He was asked to read it in Latin, but he read it in German. Like I said at the start, that we have the Bible to read in our own language is a privilege not an entitlement. Neither the original Latin or German texts exist, but the 28 articles within the Augsburg Confession contain 21 theses, so they're positive statements, we believe this, and seven, what they call antitheses, negative statements, so these are things, these are abuses we've corrected, these are things that we don't do for these reasons. And number 21 is, Scripture sets before us Christ alone as mediator, atoning sacrifice, high priest and intercessor. The context was the Roman Catholic Church promulgated the view that the saints were there as intermediaries. They would help you. They would, you know, add impetus to your prayers. You'd pray to the saint and the saint would deliver it to God with their, their little bit added in. Luther and his colleagues said that was wrong. Scripture sets before us Christ as the atoning sacrifice, high priest and intercessor, the one who is in between. We pray directly to God and Jesus Christ is the mechanism for that. So he's not just the way by which we can come to an eternity with God. He is the way by which we can communicate. 
That was his, the, one of the most precious things he gave to us. You have known me, therefore you know the Father. And if you know me and therefore you know the Father, then you have discovered eternal life. That is the immutable principle. When you came in this morning, you possibly heard some classical music in the background. That's Mendelssohn's Fifth Symphony. It was actually the second one he composed, but it was the fifth one that was published. And it's called the Reformation Symphony, because he created it as a celebration of the Augsburg Confession. Vicky wasn't impressed. She said it cast a somber feel over the proceedings. <laughs> we might not play it again. <laughs> but Mendelssohn composed that for the 300th anniversary of this Augsburg uh, Confession. And it's a very significant thing. The Anglican 39 articles are derived directly from it. It's worth looking at. We won't study it in detail today, but I'd like you to remember number 21, which is where we get this business from. The context, as I said, was the role of saints. Now then, let's have a little think about this passage. You don't need to turn to it, it's up there and full on the board. If anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And this is the incredible thing. In Jesus, God did it all. He came to earth in human form, so he can rightly say he empathises with every human feeling, every vicissitude of human life. He can empathise. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever confronts you, Jesus is able to empathise. He was betrayed. He was maligned. He suffered. He knew sorrow. He knew joy. He knew what it was to be a human being because he was one. And so, this principle, I'm going to give you a complex word now. I think it's pronounced sacerdotalism. 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 There you go. Certainly a dotalism, that's for sure. It stems from the Aaronic priesthood in the Old Testament, and it's the notion that some, a priest sits there between us and God. A human priest, right? That existed in the Old Testament days for the people of Israel. Jesus superseded it. He is the one who speaks to the Father in our defense. And my goodness, it's jolly fortunate for us that he does. I'm not, I wouldn't fancy my chances if he didn't. Don't know about you, Sean. I would fear for my future eternally if I did not know the truth that I have one in Jesus Christ who speaks to the Father in my defence and he speaks in your defence too. Not just for the sins of which you're conscious, not for the things you've done wrong that you know about or the things that you should have done that you haven't done, that you know about, but everything else, all sin. So even if it's a case of well, I wasn't aware that I'd made that error. He's already dealt with it. You can't go to a human court of law and say, I didn't know there was a speed limit there. I'm sorry. The, the, the court will say ignorance of the law is no excuse. You're subject to it nonetheless. Well, God knows that. Jesus knows that. He says, if you've acted out of ignorance, I've st I'm still in the peace. I'll forgive your sins that you're aware of and that you're not. You don't deserve it. David spoke to us about grace. Grace is receiving what you don't deserve. That's the blessing of God. 
It's coupled with mercy, which is not receiving what you do deserve. And I don't know about you, but what I deserve, I'm so glad that I, I have been spared. I have been spared. Now, Jesus was the embodiment of truth. We said he was the way, he said he was the way, the truth, and the life. He was the embodiment of truth. That's what irritated his opponents so greatly. To the religious rulers, to the bigots and prejudicial ones, he was a source of the profoundest irritation. He would speak in parables which clearly maligned their lack of grace and compassion. The examples are legion in the scriptures. But to the simple, and by that I don't just mean those without brains to think, but those who didn't come with preconceptions, he was a source of life. We heard about the Roman soldier earlier and many, many others. Some people came to him secretly, some people came to him openly. He received them as they came. And because he had empathy for them, he knew their need before they came. But amazingly, he would say to somebody, what do you want me to do for you? He had to hear the words, give me my sight. Let me walk. And when they lowered the man through the roof of the building in front of him, because there was no other way to get him in, Jesus looked at him. And he knew the religious authorities were there to trap him. And so he looked at them and said, is it easier to say to this man, get up from your bed or walk, or your sins are forgiven? And they were silent, as so often they were when they were found out. He said to the man, your sins are forgiven you. And that really angered his his opponents. And then he said to them, so that you know, I have authority to say these words. Get up from your bed and walk. And he stood up, rolled his bed up, put it under his arm, and ran out of the building. This is the way with Jesus. If he says it, he backs it up. I might make you a promise. I'll do my best to fulfill it. But I'm fallible. I may let you down. Not because I want to let you down. Just because I might have too much on. Or I might forget. Or I might accidentally do something that you don't like. Not so with Jesus. He's always there. So, he came to set us free. And this is what it says in Romans chapter 5. I'll read it to you. As the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. God's purpose in sending his son to earth was that the price of sin might be paid once and for all, and through him we might enter an eternal relationship. I'm glad that when I share the gospel, I'm not peddling some ticket to heaven when you die. I'm saying you can enter a real, living, vibrant, purposeful relationship with God now. Your path to eternity begins now. Brief mortal phase, and then eternity beyond. If that's not appealing, I can't imagine what is. All that's on earth will evaporate and disappear. The best things on earth are inferior to God's blessing. As I said earlier, they ended up fulfilling God's will, did those who attacked Jesus. They conspired to effect his death. Must have been a brutal and terrible thing to suffer that lonely fate. And as I said, to those without prejudice and preconception, he is the way, the truth, and the life. It is through him and to him alone we can find forgiveness for our sin. We can become born again 
and so come to know God. To discover that God knows us completely but forgives us nonetheless is a liberty the world cannot offer. Cannot even come close. The world seeks to numb its troubles. The world seeks to find distractions. The world does its best to find satisfaction and reward. But in Jesus Christ, we find a fulfilment in God, which cannot be matched with anything else. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. I am sole intermediary between you and God. I am the one who has paid the price for your sin. I am the one to whom you may turn for life. I am the one through whom your acquaintance with your maker is fulfilled. For some of us, this message has been a precious reminder. For others, it is an invitation. God calls you today to realise this truth for yourself.